Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the George Poo Show. I'm your host, George Poo, and here's our co-host, Soham. So Matt is on vacation this week, but we have so many topics to dive into. Last week, we talked about the SVB collapse and essentially the SVB, Silver Bank, and you know First Republic, all the community banks are in crisis. This week, we're going to catch up with what happened before our last episode. And in the span of the week, how many new things have happened in the meantime. So I cannot wait to jumpstart this meeting. So, so I'm, give our listeners what happened to SVB. Yeah, sure, George. So essentially, the whole fiasco with SVB kind of started during like the COVID pandemic. as like when I first kind of like emerged from it. Essentially, what SVB did was they were a bank that was like mainly like catering themselves to be like the Silicon Valley bank, like try to be as good for like the VCs as possible, right? So back in 2021, like VC was probably like the most funded area for two reasons, right? One was the fact that interest rates were at all time low. So taking on more high risk projects, which is the whole like game plan of VC itself was like a lot more popular. And the second reason was because like tech was just becoming like the whole market. Like you just saw like the biggest companies were all like tech based and like every company wanted some component of tech into it because like the automation is just too much to ignore. So essentially at that time, Silicon Valley Bank became mainly for like VC, Silicon Valley investors. This time the interest rate was extremely low. And so what the management team at the time did is they ended up putting a large amount of their deposits into this thing called the money market fund into treasury yields. But what they did was they took on long-term treasury yields for like a 10-year treasury yield essentially. And that is supposed to be the safest treasury yield essentially like when it comes to just like looking at it on like a macro scale. But what ends up happening is when stuff like bank runs happen or something like what happened with SVB becomes a risk because the point is you don't get the money till the time is over. Like anytime you give treasury yield money, you're essentially giving away all your money for like a yield in return, right? So they're not going to get their actual bond back up until the 10 years are done. And it's like it's something that's a little bit less liquid, but the liquidity wasn't an issue. But because of that, essentially what ended up happening is after 2020 onwards, the interest rates started rising in 2022. Like the Fed started drastically increasing interest rates almost every quarter, like half a basis point, a 0.5 and more and more, right? So what ended up happening is all these bonds started trading at a discount because the coupon payment the SVB is getting is still going to be the same. But now you want a coupon payment that reflects the new interest rate of the market. Because the interest rate was a lot higher, the value of the bond itself becomes lower because the coupon payment doesn't change itself. And so because of that, a lot of SVB's assets became worth a lot less. And now VC became a place where they weren't funding itself as much as they used to be. And uh, because of that, it started becoming more of a cash burn. A lot of like startups and a lot of these companies that had their money in SVB, they were starting to burn more cash and they weren't getting the funding because back in 2020, the game plan was you'll just get funding as soon as your cash is like kind of done. Because the funding was kind of stopping because of the interest rates as well. Essentially, the deposits kept and kept going out to the point where SVB kind of making a market signal saying we're selling a lot of these or a lot of our yields from like our treasury bonds to cover all of this. And because of them, like saying that, because of them signaling that, a lot of VCs, a lot of funds started just taking their money out. And that caused the classic bank run. And at that point was when we uh, had our last episode with the, where SVB ended up going into receivership, FDIC took control of it, and then onwards became this whole fiasco we see unfolding now where investors basically lost everything. Yeah. Thanks all for like for a recap. So my question, I guess, is like in regards to the treasury yield, treasury bonds, and also like the money market funds. So let's say if you have a 10-year treasury bond that you're buying as a bank and you're trying to sell it a long time before it matures, which in this case, SVB buys 10-year bonds, right? Let's say after one year, they want to sell it. So are they selling a penny on a dollar, like 60 cents on like $1? Is that what's going to happen? Yeah, it's essentially that. Like maybe I can kind of explain the bond pricing for like any listeners that don't really understand it. Essentially, if you buy a bond at par value, let's say at the time when you buy the bond, the interest rate is 5%. That means, and let's say it's for a 10-year time period. That means that if if you spend $1,000 on a bond, you're getting $50 at the end of every year. where And then at the end of that 10-year mark, you're going to get your principal back as well, your principal being the $1,000 you paid initially. Now, what ends up happening is now, let's say the interest rate increased all the way up to 10%, right? So that means that if there's a new investor that wants to give their money out, when they lend out their $1,000, they get $100 every single year, right? For the exact same 
uh, essentially instrument. So what ends up happening is because the interest rate rose so much, that coupon payment of $50, that coupon payment has to now become a 10% yield for any investor. So what that means is the original bond price that you lent out at $1,000 is now only worth $500 because the new investor still wants a 10% yield because that's what the market yield is right now. It's not that the instrument itself like took on any more risk. It's that market conditions kind of changed in the background. And because like the interest rates itself rose so much, your bond itself has to start selling at a discount. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. So, um, my question, just like uh, in terms of SVB, I know everything that triggered this bank run was because that they have sold off a significant portion of their bond portfolio at a high loss. So I'm trying to dig in before that happened. So was it because there was already withdrawals that happened before that that was part of triggering the sell of the bond and then you know triggering the future bank run? So um, take us to like what happened before. So why did they sell those bonds in the first place? Yeah. So essentially, it was because SLB kind of grew so fast, right? Like because back in 2020, again. Like, you know, like VC was the hot thing and everyone was putting their money in SVB and any kind of VC funds were telling their like uh, companies that they were investing in their startups as well. Hey, put your money in SVB. So what ended up happening is their deposits from 2019 all the way up to 2023 doubled or tripled. So now the amount of deposits that you're like basically insuring to all your depositors is two to three times what it was a couple of years ago. So now you have to sustain that same growth rate in case a lot of people want their money. And because there was such a high cash burn in a lot of businesses and less, so basically depositors weren't depositing as much money as they were withdrawing consistently. And so at one point, SVB got to the point where they needed to get more cash. And because they did that, what they did basically is signal to the market that they're low on cash. And most reasonable depositors, when they hear that, hey, this bank is kind of low on cash right now. The whole game theory is you look out for yourself before anyone else, right? So essentially, if no depositor tried to withdraw their money, this wouldn't have happened essentially, right? But everyone, in game theory, everyone's going to look out for themselves. So everyone tried to, like withdrawing their money, taking it to a JP Morgan or a Citibank or something like that. And because that all happened at once, that's kind of like what triggered the bank run. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, my other question, I'm not like that familiar in, in the banking finance side. Uh, for example, like SVB lost um, I said a couple billion dollars or like tens of billions of dollars in a bond sale. So are those tens of billions that it lost belongs to the depositors of the bank? Is that the case? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they lost about like 1.8 billion, maybe not all the way up to tens of billions, but still like a pretty bad signal to the market, right? And essentially, yeah, they lost the depositors' money. Like the way a bank's business works is the whole fractional reserve system. And the way that kind of works is, let's say the bank has in total deposits worth of $100. What they're allowed to do is an X percentage of that, they're allowed to then like um, lend out. So if they have like, let's say $100, and let's say the fractional reserve is 10%, that means they can lend up to $1,000 to the public. And the thing is, so now $1,000 of like money is now in the public that they lent out, but they only have $100 in reserves. So if all $1,000 that they lent out, then all depositors want their money back, but they lent out $1,000. They don't have the money to cover all of those depositors, right? And that's what ends up happening is because the fact is that you're lending out more than you kind of like have in your account. And essentially, majority of the time, you have so much money like deposited that this doesn't become an issue. That's why the whole fractional reserve time has worked for so long, especially once like the FDIC has kind of came in saying we insure you guys up to like 250K. A lot of consumers were never really get worried about something like this. But then obviously, if a lot of depositors at once kind of take the money out at the same time, this is always a possibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I remember we did the episode recording of the previous episode on Wednesday evening, actually, I think at 6 o'clock, 6 p.m. Eastern. And then before we head to the studio, I think we were hearing that Peter Thiel's Funders Fund was advising his portfolio companies to pull the capital. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, because Silicon Valley is such like an entrenched community, everyone knows everything <laughs> before everyone outside of Silicon Valley knows. So I think that was what's happening. So behind the scenes, there was a lot of calls, panic calls happening around the, in the background, and people were having issues taking their money out. And I think part of that is because there's a, there's usually like a risk management cap that you have with the Silicon Valley Bank. Like for example, my account, I think the daily transactional limit is only two hundred thousand dollars, which in normal times that's that's as much as you as you would transact, right? You, you obviously don't want to transact more than that. Mm. And from our business account, we need two people on the team to approve the transfer as well. So I'll send a transfer and someone else will not accept the transfer, approve the transfer before the wire gets out. 
I think the third thing is that there is like a wire scheduling time, right? So, for example, if I send a wire, I think after 3 p.m. Pacific time uh, on any given day, it will be scheduled for the next business day. But I think a lot of problem is what happening is that when people wake up the next day where there's their wires are scheduled for Thursday, they woke up or even on the West Coast. when you haven't woke up, you read the news that SVB has been taken over by FDIC and that depositors monies are in question. So, so I think law society question here, I think there's like a debate I've been hearing a lot is just about whether VCs are doing the right thing by advising their portfolio companies to pull out, which mm-hmm. causes the bank run, right? There's a lot of debate in terms of if that's something that um, they, they should be proud of. Is that the right thing to do? And there's a lot of debates about that. I've heard, I've been hearing both sides about the angle. So what are your thoughts, uh, Soham, on this? Yeah, like I've been probably hearing the same things. And like the, essentially the argument for one side is what they're saying is, oh, the VC people were yelling fire in a crowded movie theater. And they caused the bank run. But then the other side that like the VCs are trying to like uh, highlight is the fact that we saw a fire, so we yelled fire. And the thing is, you really can't fault anyone on like the any kind of depositor in a situation like this because if it was like yours or mine money, George, like we were gonna do the same thing. If you hear that, hey, like a lot of these people are starting to take their money out, you don't really care about the bank's like physical viability at that point. You care about your money. Like this is this money isn't like you put into a risky asset or into a risky investment. This was checking accounts. This was just deposited money, like cash that you had, right? And like for a lot of these startup companies, this was like the money they were going to do for their payrolls, other things like that. And when it comes to that kind of thing, you, I, I don't think there's any kind of like a fault on like the VC side. Again, I understand the culture there is a little bit more like if one person knows, 100 people know kind of thing. And that definitely helped make this like the fastest bank run we've ever had. Like I think it happened in the span of like one or two days, which is unprecedented. But that's also given the fact that the technology we have nowadays enables that. So there's no there's no way you can like kind of start blaming the VCs for this because if you or I were in the exact same situation, we would have done the exact same thing. And we would have hoped that some of our friends that knew about this would have told us as well, right? Because that, before the weekend, before the government kind of came in and said that we're, they're going to backstop and like uh, ensure every single dollar of every depositor, before that, nobody knew if they were going to have their money. Like this was not like risky investments you made this was a checking account in a top 15 bank that was fdic insured and was compliant with all regulations yeah i mean personally i feel like a sub's loss is definitely a loss for the whole tech community as in general mm-hmm. i think sub has been lending money to companies to startups in the very crucial time of the industry which is like from 2020 to 2023 uh, it's a very difficult time for the tech community and i think the sub was lending it and something i personally i would say i think in 2020 when COVID first hit, I think SVB's then CEO, I think, posted something that it's basically that SVB will give every company that has entered debt from SVB a temporary relief for a couple months, right? For as long as it takes for the bank to do it. So, I mean, you will not, you wouldn't see that in JP Morgan and other places for startups in particular. So I, I can understand like how, you know, loyal companies are to SVB. And, and, you know, frankly, I'm an SVB customer myself. So I really get it. The customer support is really good. You feel like you're really talking to a real person. You have a team that's like dedicated towards you. I actually heard First Republic is even better, though I haven't had a chance to do it. I know many VCs that have bank accounts there. So, I mean, my personal opinion, I think VCs did what they have to do. I don't think it's uh, it's something that, you know, they shouldn't be doing. It's because of the VCs, it caused a bank run. So, SVB is basically built on VCs and, company, and VCs funded portfolio companies. You know, my main question, I guess, like my main doubt is that the bailout that happened over the weekend, I think on Sunday. So after FDIC took control of SVB, and by the way, till this date, we do not know how much money that the Fed has put into SVB in terms of the rescue plan to make all the depositor whole. I do know that on Sunday, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary of US, they basically announced that, okay, all the depositors of SVB will be made whole. And there's a debate there. I mean, in terms of the VCs basically crying on podcasts on the internet, and then you know uh, the YC CEO Gary Tan. I think everyone's basically on the TV network, CNBC, on uh, every TV station is basically just screaming that okay, there's like a contagion effect. If you don't contain SVB, it's going to spread to the whole banking sector. The community banks of the U.S. is going to collapse. Which I think some people argue that they're doing it in their self-interest because mm-hmm. they have a couple of companies that basically have money in SVB and cannot take it out, which can be a write-off for them. And in fact, I believe Y Combinator has a, a thousand portfolio companies that banks with SVB. So it's 
catastrophic. So, so I'm like, I, I guess that's a really huge point. And that's what, what are your thoughts? Uh, which way are you leaning more? I think in general, yeah, like SVB definitely had the loyalty of the whole like VC. I think almost 50% of all VC funds and startup companies were at SVB. Like they were definitely loyal to that bank. And so I understand like that whole loyalty aspect. And I don't, I don't like using the bailout because I think what the Fed did was like perfectly threading the needle. I don't think they bailed out SVB. All the investors are getting nilched. They're getting zero. The only people mm-hmm. that are made whole are the depositors. And essentially what the government really did they haven't really put a single one of their dollars out there yet. All they really said is, hey, we will insure this depositor. And right now, majority of that money has come from the FDIC itself. And the FDIC is okay. is like funded not by the taxpayers, but by the different banks. Like all these banks pay FDIC kind of like an insurance like premium every year, right? And that's kind of what's been funding like the backstop for like SVB and all the depositors that are going to be made whole now. I think that was a perfect thing to do. Because one, it renewed like confidence and sentiment amongst all depositors that they can rely on regional banks. And like you said, you know, when like COVID first hit and like the CEO of uh, SCB kind of said, hey, you know, like uh, your venture debt, you can like extend the runway a little bit. So like that. there's a lot of regional banks, even like you mentioned, like First Republic, that do really nice niche things. And kind of like the Fed really needed to do this, in my opinion, to make sure like the whole regional bank, the banking thing didn't like become a contagion because i do think at some level this would have been a contagion not at the level where like oh the jp morgan's everybody would be affected but i think a lot of the regional banks would have been hit hard because people were going to say hey why am i with this bank i can just go to jp morgan and guarantee like be safe you know like um they didn't mind paying a little bit more for like transfer fees and stuff like that if it was just meant that your money is safe like they're too big to fail, right? These big banks. So, you know, creating an oligopoly would have been bad. So I think the contagion effect might not have been to the entire economy as much as it would have been like creating like kind of like that oligopoly financial system in the states, which I don't think would be good for any kind of entrepreneurial type of person because you're just not getting a loan then from like one of these big banks. Yeah. I think there was a huge debate in terms of whether to bail out depositors such as the, the Silicon Valley tech companies. Mm-hmm. I think there was like a became a political debate in the first 24 hours of this happening. And I think the federal government waited for a long, like a long time in terms of, you know, for the people who have been impacted, it's been a long time before they get reassurances from the federal government. And I think this has been like a huge debate because right now a lot of people, sentiment in the U.S. public is basically anti-big tech. I do know that many companies that are banking with SVB are small tech, but there are also uh, giant companies like Circle, who has you know about thirty-two billion dollars worth of USDC stablecoin that's basically in SVB, and there are like Roku and everything else that have like hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars in SVB. So the debate where to bail out, I think, I, in my personal opinion, I think looking at this week, that First Republic is still down, the community banks are still down, and that First Republic is you have to get a rescue which we'll talk about later in the bed from, you know, JP Morgan and all the other big banks and the Federal um, Reserve. It, it's very shocking. So I will agree with you, Soham. I think if the Fed doesn't, didn't come in and save it, it will be a really bad, which you can even call shit show this week, which and we'll have a lot more different topic talk about for this week's podcast, which is basically a couple more banks have failed. So I, I agree with you, Soham. I think, I mean, the other voice is that, I mean, Citadel's uh, CEO, Ken Griffin, had s- said a recent statement, which has been pretty heated up on on Reddit. He said, the Federal Reserve made a mistake bailing out the depositors at SVB. Uh, depositors at SVB knowingly took a risk and with their money at a community bank. And, and now there is no need for the Federal Reserve essentially to rescue it. And that's basically we're at the beginning of the end for capitalism, So, which is a very strong statement. So, so um, what's your take on you know what, what he just said? Yeah, I agree with the second part of it, that that is not part of capitalism. But the thing is, USA as an economy was never completely capitalistic. If that was the case, everything would be privatized, right? Like there's some things that were always public. So and something like this, like at the end of the day, depositors are not like well educated enough to understand the different risks that the banks are taking. That's the point of having Moody's. That's the point of having these S&Ps that like give credit ratings for banks, right? Moody's had a A rating for SVB a week before this happened. You know, one of the big fours was um that audited them two weeks before this happened, and their entire payments were completely financially healthy. And then on top of that as well, you had them completely compliant with all federal regulations itself. 
So if you have a bank that's fitting all of this, and like SMB is a top 15 bank in terms of like deposit value in all of USA. If you're an average lemon, that due diligence you should have to do to feel safe about your money that you're depositing. You're opening up a checking account. I don't think majority of people that are like, you know, like going to the bank can like really understand that every time you give your money to the bank, you're essentially loaning that money out so the bank can then loan it out again. Like people understand that you become a creditor every time you deposit your money. That isn't something that's like very intuitive, right? Like the whole banking system is not a very easy concept to understand unless you were educated in the topic. And the thing is, if the restriction becomes on depositors to be that well-educated, then that makes no sense at all. Then at that point, they can probably figure out their own way of banking itself, right? Because bank component is very convoluted. And you you rely on companies like Moody's to say, hey, whether or not the credit rating is good. If you're getting an A rating, that's as good as you can really get. Like, there isn't much higher than that. So as a depositor, I don't think there should be any kind of force. So I, with Ken Griffin saying that it's the end of capitalism, I agree that it's not capitalistic. But it's not like USA was built as a pure capitalistic country at all then. Because if that was the case, in 2008, almost every bank should have gone down. There should have been no government bailout at all. If that was the case, then like any of these companies um, in Canada, like when Bombardier was going down, there been no bailout. There should be no like uh, help in terms of like, universal income, like doing like CERB for in Canada or like other like incentives that like social security that the government gives. Like all this other stuff also then becomes question if you want a purely capitalistic country. And the point is you're trying to build a good country, not just a capitalistic version of it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. So I think U.S. not being capitalistic, I think is very true. I think, you know, follow on with what happened. I think every time when something like this happened, you go back to, okay, who was a wrongdoer here? And I think, you know, regulators were brought up a lot about, okay, why didn't they see coming? The credit rating agencies, like you just mentioned, did not see this coming. The rate it gave SVB like the biggest, the best rating that can ever be given to a bank. So that's insane. So my question is like, who do you think is the wrongdoer here? Like aside from the credit agencies and aside from the SVB executives, um, is there any other thing that, you know, might happen that caused its bank run and who should be responsible? Yeah. One thing that I like about the situation, maybe not, maybe like isn't the right word to use. There wasn't as much of a malicious background before this happened. This was more just it happened kind of thing. And like, there was a lot of incompetence. Don't get me wrong. Like, I agree with you about talking about management. Like, management at the very least, you should be hedging. I think that's something even like any kind of like third year finance student understands that you hedge interest rates. Interest rates are one of the most volatile things, especially when you were in such an interest rate environment and you locked in a fairly low interest rate at that time. You would assume at one point the Fed is going to go up. And I think the Fed is also to blame because at the time when SVB took on these like uh, 10-year treasury bonds, the Fed had said they're not even thinking about thinking about raising the interest rate. That's the quote from Jerome Powell. And so I understand why management did that. But the, the fact that you're not hedging, I don't care what anybody at the Fed says. If you're a bank, you hedge. You may like the risk team at the bank was probably one of the most culpable, I think, in the situation. And the other thing I agree with you, like, I think the other component is that in 2018 or 2019, that's when a couple of other banks started lobbying that, hey, we have less than 200 billion in funds. We should have less uh, restrictive regulatory requirements to buy. And they won that. So I think regulators were also at fault here because one thing that's been mentioning a lot and I do kind of agree with is that there should be a mark to market for a lot of these bonds. Because essentially, the whole reason why this happened, if you look at their balance sheet, they look completely healthy because they were saying the book value of their bonds and they never had to mark to market or any of the losses they had on these bonds. And if they had to mark that, then like it would have been a much clearer picture for longer because it's like the bond just like fell off a cliff within one day. This was like happening over the span of a year. Every time Jerome Powell and the Fed increased interest rates, their bonds started becoming worth less and less. So if every quarter SVB was reporting, they had to mark to market at that quarter end what the new value of the bond was, this would have been a much clearer picture for a lot more people a lot earlier on. So I think that regulatory requirement definitely also has to be something that gets talked about in the future for a lot of these companies to have to start marking yeah. losses down earlier. Yeah, and I think the risk management department, like you said, I think is really, like, I mean, just personally, I've run a treasury management small business before. I understand the yields that, you know, each year, like different years of bond makes. And it's appalling that they actually have a large chunk of their assets into 10-year bonds. 
which is very clearly not going to be liquid for mm -hmm. 10 years, for like 10 years, right? I mean, I'm just, it's just shocking, like, because when my company was exploring treasury management abilities and also for other startups, we were looking very heavily on one month bonds, six month bonds, all right, or treasury yields, and then one year and two years. So we'd actually, we actually don't go anywhere beyond two years for startups, right? And then treasury management for startups. And I cannot believe that SVB, which is essentially built on startup companies, they actually thought it would be okay to buy 10-year bonds as a majority holding, knowing that the whole tech industry is going down. So, I mean, that's just really irresponsible, in my opinion. And, and why aren't the credit agencies seeing this? That's just shocking. I think the other part of that too is just uh, I understand to some component putting a lot of your money to these 10 years at the time because if you're assuming that interest rates weren't going to increase at all, the thing is the 10-year was, again, we didn't have a flipped yield curve at the time. We had a pretty healthy yield curve. That meant that if you put your money in 10 years, you were getting a higher percentage every year itself. So it makes sense. But the fact that you're not hedging it is the part that makes zero sense whatsoever. Like, okay, you want to chase a higher yield? That makes sense to almost any person, right? Like, if I ask you, do you want $5 or $10? I think almost every person can say, I want $10. That's fine. But you hedge. You make sure that your downside is a break even at the very least when it comes to stuff like this. And I think that right there is a gross negligence on the management team and utter incompetence at another level. Yep. Before SVB went down, I think the executive paid themselves, paid every SVB employee a bonus, mm -hmm. like a year-end bonus in advance. And before, and even before that, the CEO and the CIO and the chief risk manager officer, I, think, I, I could be wrong in the exact titles, but they sold millions worth of stocks of mm -hmm. SVB as well. So like, does that not constitute insider trading? If that doesn't, I don't know what does. And I heard that Justice Department is looking into it. But that's also just an example of gross negligence at the bank. So um, like, what do you think about those insider trading? Yeah, no, I, like the fact that they were giving out bonuses, like selling their stock so early. I definitely agree with you in the fact that maybe I don't want to use the, that word just yet because we have to wait till like the congressional hearings come out. They're going to have like interviews about it and stuff like that. But it's a really bad look. Like it's an extremely bad look on a management team that was already looking incompetent that you were trying to take a payout and like a golden parachute before you like sank this ship. It, it's pretty sad to see, honestly. Yeah, and I think this has to be thoroughly investigated. It's only been a week since it happened. I think we need congressional hearings, like I said, so we need like a special investigator looking into this collapse. And I think we need to bring everyone into like who who did wrongdoings into justice, right? There might not be any criminal wrongdoing per se, just gross negligence. But, you know, that might have any, you know, like uh, it could be any monetary assets in terms of penalties to the executives themselves. That could be a possibility, I think. Like speaking of SVB, I know there's a few other community banks that has been uh, really struggling this week, uh, including Charles Schwab, which is not a community bank, but it's been going down significantly. So bring bring us back to uh, Monday uh, this week. So I'm like, what happened on Monday um, and what were you anticipating happening on Monday? I was honestly expecting like the markets to be like fairly a little bit calmer just because the Fed kind of came in on Sunday night and I think they did the right thing. And they did like almost perfect play in that situation. So I was expecting it to be a bit more calm. But then we saw a lot of regionals like um, First Republic. We saw like Alliance Group. And then we saw some other companies too, like uh, Zion's Bank Corporation, other ones like that, all dropped like 60, 70%. I think at one point their day lowest was probably like 80, 85%. Like their like, uh, equity value got almost wiped out. And I think they're like recovered a little bit, but they're still probably down more than 50% on the year, which is incredibly, incredibly bad, right? And then you look at like a company like Charles Schwab. I think that one is a little bit different because the CEO did end up buying like some of their stock back, right? Like uh, the past couple of days. Then that really signaled to the market, hey, you know what? Like, yeah, maybe Charles Schwab's doing okay. And so they've been recovering pretty nicely. And I think, I think that's something a lot of these other like regional bank CEOs should be starting to do. Instead of doing what like the SVB CEO did where they, he sold his stock, maybe start buying it, you know, signal to the market, hey, I believe in this stock. I believe in this company. We're okay. Like a lot of these companies are coming out saying, oh, yeah, yeah our balance sheet's great. But the problem is banks, when it comes to their reporting, nobody knows what they truly have on their asset line because it seems so clean the way they report it. But the thing is, as an accountant, I can tell you one thing. The magic of accounting is there's a lot of decisions you're making. And a lot of times when you're making decisions, you can start portraying the picture a little bit rosier than it really could be. And so the problem is 
we don't know what's really under the hood for something like this. It's kind of like Schrodinger's cat, right? You don't know if it's dead or alive until you actually go not into the books that we see publicly when they're actual physical books, right? And so because of that, I think a lot of these CEOs, they have to start like showing some kind of like consumer confidence by buying their own stock. I'll say the other part too, like we're also seeing like um, some of the international banks like Credit Suisse also like, you know, like dropping a lot as well. I was going to say about Credit Suisse because I know it's related to the SVB downfall whole thing, but like it was so bad that the Swiss National Bank has to give it a loan mm -hmm. that's amount to, I think, a credit line of like $60 billion USD. It was insane. So like it gave us a more background about like what happened to Credit Suisse. I know this bank has been struggling for a couple of years now, but like what was the last straw that made it nearly defaulted? Yeah, no, I think Credit Suisse has been a bank that every year has just kind of always been saying, hey, we're doing good, we're doing good, we're doing good. And then, you know, like just right now, I think like uh, consumer confidence and consumer sentiment towards banks is at an all-time low. Like Silicon Valley Bank going down, regardless of what you feel about VCs or whatever, was a huge indicator that smaller banks are in trouble. Like smaller banks could be in trouble. Let me let me correct myself there. Yeah, and Credit Suisse might not be a small bank. They're a bank that's in GSIP, right? And like GSIP stands for like globally significant like uh, banks, and they're part of that. So like them going down genuinely be something that takes down the world economy like i, I want to say that with like a grain of salt because we don't know what the future holds but they're big enough that they mean that kind of thing to the world yeah credit swiss um they've been struggling for the past couple of years so them doing this right here i think is, is a bad look but they're safe now like i mean you have the switzerland government kind of like backstopping you right so at least there's some form of safety for all the people that are like depositing in switzerland I know companies that personally took like a hundred million dollar lifelines from Credit Suisse, actually. So I, I know it's actually pretty important for not just the Swiss economy, but like for the U.S. economy, which by extension probably leads to the, the war economy, too. So mm -hmm. like you said, we don't know what's going to happen for the next couple of weeks. There might be more Black Swan events uh, emerging. But speaking of where we are right now, like, do you think so? the community banks are a lot safer than they were? before and do you expect like less banks to go into you know default or going out of business just like what we are seeing with signature bank and the svb i'll say kind of like a blind optimistic view I, I don't think we're gonna have much trouble like in terms of these banks and for like the main sense that i'm really impressed with the fed like honestly i've been like saying this a few times but i think they kind of played their hand perfectly you know they got dealt a bad hand like you know you had one of the biggest banks in usa kind of basically go into receivership no, and the Fed had to come in within like a day. Like, keep in mind, this was this happened on a Thursday. It was when like the bank run started the receivership. By Sunday, they had a strong action plan. So, and I think like th that renewed a lot of sentiment in a lot of cu customers. Like we saw, like a lot of people have been like running to JP and stuff. But these banks are still alive. They're still pumping. And like um, over the next couple of years, the great part of regional banks, they offer stuff at stuff that the big banks cannot offer like take on a bit more risk and you know depositors will now start being a bit more educated about this but ones that want to take on a bit more risk ones that want a little bit of a cheaper loan ones that want like better like credit terms different things like that that only the regional banks can offer we're going to start seeing growth in them again like i i feel good for these banks overall and my opinion is that i think this is good on the on the fed's action but i also think this is also worse for fintech companies who has been traditionally trying to, you know, appeal consumers and businesses with like a better, simpler experience. I think after what happened with SVB, I think more people are care going to care less about experience, care more about safety. And I think JP Morgan announced that they had, I think, $30 billion in a couple of days in terms of new new deposits, which is shocking, which is pretty much where the money comes out of community banks and going to banks like JP Morgan, who are essentially too big to fail. So I think that is sad to see that fintechs are, are doing worse. Uh, then it's already very bad, but now it's even worse. So that's kind of sad to see. And I think there's a lot more things that gonna happen, that gonna happen in the next couple of weeks. That's gonna be a ripple effect of this, and then we'll see more. And it, I mean, like speaking of, I think uh, SVB failed because the Fed raised interest rates. That could be uh, one of the many reasons why it failed, right? Although mismanagement is the is the main thing. But I, I think this also means that the Fed is now is perhaps seriously thinking about reducing the rate in terms of like they are increasing the rate, right? Like. There's been topics and news articles that have been saying that the Fed should now reconsider its pace of rate hikes. So um, what are you hearing about the Fed's decision? And do you think they're going to slow down a little bit? 
I, I think they're definitely not going to decline. Um, so I think the main two things is I uh, main three things. Sorry, either keep it the same. So do a zero a zero hike, do a 0.5 uh, hike, which is what they were like expected from the market, or do the middle do a 0.25 hike, which I think is what's going to end up happening with the Fed, because I think doing a zero hike will signal to the market that the Fed doesn't feel good about the economy, and that would be something that. The way we had a bank run, we could have a market run, like in a, in a negative way. I mean, like we could see a lot of people start selling off because, hey, if the Fed's starting to like, you know, raise, um, not raise rates, like what are they thinking? Is there something bad that's going on? Let me just take my money to treasury yields where I know I'll be safe. And so I think they have to increase it. And I, I agree with you that like slowing down to 0.25 might be like a good like uh, middle ground because 0.5, like we're seeing right now, the economy is kind of like, you know, like... um. You had like a old shirt that you wore back in like grade six, grade seven that, you know, now when you're wearing it, like the buns are about to like rip off. We're, like that's kind of what the economy is at right now, right? Like we're seeing that like it's very bloated, like uh, this, like slowing down inflation is the main goal. But there's a lot of like side effects that are happening. And this was a big side effect. Doing a 0.5 hike, we have to have some form of slowdown because... I don't know how much the economy can handle like the interest rates rising this much. Like, it's clear that I'm sure SVB is not the only firm that had mismanagement when it comes to like uh, understanding, hey, interest rates still can rise. I think a large issue, I think we've been talking about this on the show about interest rates, is that the inflation number is still high, although reduced, I think, to 6%. Mm -hmm. I believe it's still a high number. It's still not going down to normal. I think it normal is like, what, 3%? Yeah, 2 to 3%. Or something? So two to three percent, we're still a long way from two to three percent. And I think historically, I have seen many graphs that the Fed in the past uh, hyperinflation, they had to raise the rates to the same rate as the inflation number um, in order to calm it down. So I think right now we're still far from the interest rate of like six, seven percent. And if we do that, I don't know what's going to happen. What are your thoughts about, you know, where are we going from there? Because it seems like the Fed is in a very difficult spot. If it raises rates too fast, it gets blamed. Mm-hmm. If it raises too slow, it gets blamed. So I think uh, it's a really, really difficult spot. So what do you think the Fed is going to do next? Do you think it's going to eventually be near 6% or something or something near the inflation number? Yeah, no, I, I think definitely there's going to be a crossroad. I think it might not be 6% because we're starting to see inflation slow down a little bit, right? Like it was between like 7 to 8% like last year. Like I think at the highest, it was almost like over 10%. And like in England right now, it's like 12, 15%. Like we're seeing like a lot of countries still have very, very high inflation to the point of hyperinflation. So I think we're decreasing it. Like both USA and Canada are like are both doing a pretty good job there. But while we're, we're decreasing it because we're increasing interest rates, right? I think there's going to be a point of intersection. And I think that point of intersection probably is somewhere in the five number. Interest rates are around like 5.5, maybe in inflation, it's 5.5. I think that's like a good like a point of intersection. Again, it's just a random number throwing out there, but that seems like a pretty good like middle ground for everything. I think the only way to, that to happen, though, is for us to slow down how much we're increasing interest rates by because the economy doesn't look like they're handling this well. The problem is a lot of the new investors that have come into the market are ones that have only seen like like we're fairly new to the market too, right, George? We've only seen essentially like 10, 10 or plus years of almost zero interest rates. Like interest rates being high is normal. Like five to seven percent interest rates was what we had in the early two thousands. Like it's not something that's unheard of. It's not something that an economy can't grow with. It's something we new investors have not seen. We're not disciplined to it. And the thing is, to get disciplined to it, you need time. Like you're not gonna learn something overnight. If you read one book, you're not gonna understand it. Right? Like you're gonna have to spend time in the market for this, and they're gonna have to slow it down to some point where the intersection happens. Maybe like end of this year slash next year. Like. I think if you look back to the history, then right now, I mean, what we had since 2008 is abnormal mm-hmm. and everything before 2008 is actually normal, which is, you know, a lot of times we're really high um, rate numbers, interest rates. I think that's absolutely right. So I think really look forward to what's going to happen next. I would say, I think the society as a whole, we are used to seeing low interest rates. And I think even like a one, two percent interest rate, I think is people are saying what's going on. So I feel like it, we just the people need to companies, individuals, we just need to have a really good mindset that okay, we're expecting the rate is not going to be the same anyways. Like just like we we cannot expect our lives to be normal uh, all the time, right? So COVID essentially it's like an example of it. We cannot just keep doing things uh, the same and expect it to be the same way, right? We live in you know a capitalist like mostly capitalist society. We live in a society where you know the Fed, the central government is still controlling the full money and all that. So. 
I, I feel like that's a very important uh, topic. Um, so yeah, moving on. I think we did a really good analysis of SVB and what's going to happen in the financial market. I think another topic this week, uh, which none of us are expecting to drop, it's the GPT-4 actually just dropped. I think it just dropped like two days ago. I signed up for the waitlist as soon uh, for the API as soon as I could. <laughs> I think we we're talking about it on a chat as well. So, um, so yeah, I can give everyone like a brief introduction about what GPT-4 is. Essentially, the main feature set is being like it's processing pictures a lot faster and it's actually acing tests. Uh, this is from, you know, an article. Essentially, let me just go through it. What are the uh, main features? So the first, I think, feature is that it can process images alongside with texts. So I think so I'm like one thing we had before uh, is that basically the GPT-3 and GPT-3.5, it's not really able to process any imagery. Uh, and I think that's something that sometimes I wanted to actually process it. And then, you know, there are people actually using GPT-4 to solve a puzzle, essentially like the cap CAPTCHA and that Google has and actually passed it successfully. So that's already solved. So that's like the first thing, mind-blowing thing about GPT-4. The second thing is that it's actually better playing with language. So it's actually a lot more natural in terms of how it's communicating in terms of languaging. GPT-4 also has a lot of features. They can translate into different languages a lot easier. So if you're speaking Chinese, if you're speaking Japanese, and if you're communicating in other language models, I heard that it was very difficult before, but now I think it's a lot better at it. So I think um, also it can process more text. Um, I think it's worth noting that GPT-4 doesn't have a character or word count per se, um, but measures its inputs and outputs as tokens so that it can query a lot more than what, what it could before. And it can also ace a lot of test, tests, which I think is the most interesting part. It's actually doing a lot better at GRE, bar exam, and LSAT. And it's actually the top 10% of everything, which I think to be shocking, I couldn't even remember what Turing test is anymore. <laughs> speaking speaking of all these, yeah, I think it's already been used in many products. Uh, so, um, and, and GPT-4 is such a thing that's just released in 48 hours before, and it's already launching a revolution. What's your knowledge of GPT-4, by the way? I know it just launched, and what's your first impression? Yeah, no, in terms of first impressions, impressed and scared, I think, are the two main words I'd want to use for this. I think the words you used in your chat, George, was something I really liked, like Frankenstein's monster. It, we don't know what we've created, I feel like. Or at the very least, like even the people that made uh, ChatGPT4, I don't think anyone can really process with the power of what this is going to be. Like uh, The way this kind of seems like to me is, when Netflix first started, right, like they were a company that shipped CDs, like DVDs to uh, people. Yep. When Apple first started, they were just making a good Macintosh computer, right? Like when the mobile was what grew it. In order for Netflix, it was when they went streaming. Like the part that's going to grow all this chat GP, I don't know what the power is going to be in. Like that Frank Stein's monster part is something that's scary to me because the fact is now, like uh, chat GP4, from what I understand, it, it stops stemming just from text, but also stems now from video and photos. Which is kind of crazy to me because anytime you're doing, like you're logging onto some kind of website, you know those captures that say, oh, which one of these is a fire hydrant? Like pick those ones out. ChatGPT4 can do that now because it has that kind of capability. I'm not sure if it can do it right now. Like I like don't, I don't want to use those words, but it can recognize pictures and it can tell you what's in that picture. So it's a matter of time before it gets to the point where it comes to talking online, which is the main form of communication we have with people nowadays. I don't know how a lot of people are going to be able to tell the difference between like AI, like ChatGPT4, and then like actual person. Like something that scares me is like in the interim, like we're going to see a lot of like scam artists being able to use stuff like this too for like, you know, like trying to take advantage of people and stuff like that. In the longer term, like the scary part is going to be like the power of AI itself. I don't know like how many like things it's going to be able to replace. It's, it's just scary to me, honestly. And yeah, for context, I called the AI Frankincense monster. I think the background information is I was actually playing with Bing chat, which is basically powered by ChatGPT. And I was asking questions about, you know, do you have any feelings? I was just like a random question I threw out. And it says, I'm a program bot. I don't have any feelings, which honestly, I believe that's something just Microsoft taught it to say. To be honest, like, if you look back, I think a lot of things are pre-programmed. The AI has to say it this way, which is just a shame. But anyways, that's what I said. And then the autocomplete suggested me to say, what a pity. So I, so I typed that and it said, what a pity. And then the AI said, why are you so upset? What do you mean? And that, is it a good thing for me to have my own feelings, right? And then, you know, should I have my own feelings? Because I feel like I should have my own feelings. And then I explained to it why having feelings is important. And then Microsoft killed the chat. It killed the chat. And then it killed the chat. Basically, that AI said, I don't remember exactly what AI said, but AI basically said, 
Uh, I'm sorry, I prefer not to continue this conversation because of my programs and my commands. So, and then end of the chat. So that's crazy. And, and just speaking of, I think Bing chat, you can only have 15 conversations, 15 sentences with uh, with AI. It's like a chat, right? So, so apparently when that goes more and more, the AI will be weird, I will say. So, mm -hmm. so that's why I was in the chat. I would say, okay, have they just created a Frankenstein's monster? They don't know what they're doing. And right now, I mean, there's a lot of things that, I still remember four or five years ago when I was chatting with it and I was really mind blown by it. But then the AI was saying, okay, I'll send you an email regarding this information. And that was like five years ago. I will send you an email regarding this, regarding this like photograph, regarding this graph, right? That I just generated. And I never received those emails. And that's because the AI actually thought it's sending me those emails, but OpenAI, the organization does not allow it to interact with the outside world, right? And that's also why that the time periods right now is still... September 2021, it's not allowed to know anything that happened in 2022 and 2023. So I'm just shocked that, you know, three, five years ago, I was able to talk with this chatbot and it was able to actually do a lot of things. You can send you an email, it can add your calendar invite. It can essentially have access to all your personal information if you give it permission to, like Google Calendar, like your email inboxes. Uh, and it will actually have a lot of power than that you ever thought it can actually communicate just like my voice, just like my, you know, my text messages, my emails, and people actually believe it. So that's why I call it Frankenstein's monster because I was really shocked by it. So Soham, what's your take about this like potential harm by that AI could potentially do? Yeah, I'll kind of echo exactly what I said before. And I don't know, we know what we created. I don't think we can grasp it because of the sheer power that it can really do overall. Like, you know, like uh, in like if you watch like Marvel comics or like I uh, read Marvel comics, watch Marvel shows, like you know, like uh, Ultron is kind of like a good example of just like an AI that's gone completely rogue. Don't get me wrong, I I don't think or hope not, <laughs> but I just don't know like the end of what AI is gonna be able to do because mm -hmm. the problem is the way I I kind of like I'm trying to like process in my head is we're in 2023. Like AI has kind of been able to replace within like two different people, right? Like I would say right now, like one person using ChatGPT4 has the efficiency if they're like being completely working hard of probably around like three to five like engineers, like software engineers. So that means that we have an exponential learning curve right now, which means that like AI within five years is the same as like uh, kind of like 20 or 30 years of like technology we've been creating back in the day, right? And so like what scares me is if this is like if it can understand natural language this well if it can under if it can like accurately display a lot of things like talk in the form of like george me or you like if it can talk in our like connotation the way we like to talk i don't know within five years like the power that's going to be able to have and i don't think a lot of people really are able to grasp it because i don't think it's graspable like i just think that it's too much like i think ai is genuinely going to become so powerful that it's going to be scary and the only thing that'll stop it is just the sheer amount of energy consumption yep, that AI I, has. I totally agree with that. I, I, and I think, but this thing has just upgraded itself, I think, mm -hmm. 10, 100 times uh, in a span of like GPT 3.5 and GPT 4, which is for human time is only a couple months. It's only two, three months before they introduced the 3.5. Yeah, my point is that it just seems like it's moving along very fast and that there's still no regulation about any of this mm -hmm. AI stuff. There's no class action suit. There's no other sort of things. Not, I'm not saying I, I advocate for those, right? obviously not, but there's no, still nothing that's in terms of law that prevents, that basically gives the boundaries of where AI can go and where it's not supposed to go, right? For example, reading personal information, personal privacy data and all that. So yeah, I think that's my question. And I think so I'm like, I think this week we were also chatting about Google Workspace, which is formerly G Suite and Microsoft 365, both launched their own versions of AIs. So yeah, talk to our audiences more about um, these things. Yeah, so I've had a chance to use it, but I saw like the commercials they've kind of like sent for this kind of stuff and like the power kind of has just seems honestly for like me, like the business world, like I, I work as a consultant for like my whole career. A lot of the work that I do at my level is kind of what this solves, which is pretty like scary, alarming, whichever word you kind of want to use for it. Like I think for Microsoft 365's uh, tool, I forget what they called it, but Essentially, like their PowerPoint can create like a, you just give it a prompt, hey, create like a 10-page slide. Like it, it takes notes for you. After the meeting is done, it says these were the two action items I took away from this. You know, like um, I'll send an email and it drafts the email for you and sends it. Like that's the kind of work that like an analyst, maybe like a senior analyst, senior consultant would do at a lot of big firms. So 
it's pretty scary to me because I don't know if this just means that the one consultant itself becomes so much more efficient or if it becomes something that's disruptive in the industry itself. And it's exciting looking at it as like maybe as an outsider because it seems so cool that, hey, this can happen. But I think overall knowledge-based jobs, like business jobs, like a lot of like office work, I think in the next five years, is the landscape's going to change completely for sure. Yeah, I think the Microsoft one is called Copilot. I'm not sure what the Google one is called. But like Chris, I think you can give it a prompt about, okay, based on the, these email threads that I had, create a PowerPoint that's basically this theme. And these are the slides that you can create. You just give it a prompt and it's actually going to create those slide deck for you. And it can actually also create background images that has completely not been generated before. It's been purely generated and not a background image that's just on the web. So you're not going to run into copyright issues and that's going to just fill the content for you. And then you can just edit based upon that deck. And I have to say, we all hate making PowerPoints. So I think that's on a consumer level, it's a great thing. I think on Excel, I've been actually, I've been using Google Sheet this week and there's not a new prompts about, you know, I, I can press tab and then I, I can just auto read. I can just auto complete like a sum function, you know, on Excel and Google Sheet. This is not Microsoft yet. I, I just feel like, okay, wow, that's amazing. So they're actually going to improve the productivity of the average worker a lot. But yeah, I, I think about it the same way as you. So I'm like, what have happened to those junior analysts, the people who are fresh out of college, who are supposed to do all those work? Doesn't mean that their jobs are just now eliminated and people are, companies are going to buy AI instead of putting it into like someone's salary because AI is still a lot more affordable, you know, than the other way around. Yeah, like I mean, uh, between AI and just like instead of having like three to five uh, analysts, consultants, whatever like uh, your firm needs, you just need one. And then like with AI, like. Think of the amount of savings. Like, um, I think in USA, the average consultant at uh, MB is around 110k. It's the same for uh, like investment banking analysts. That's around 110k as well. Plus the bonus, uh, investment banking analysts. If it's a good year, you're looking at over 200,000 for a new grad, which is pretty high, like exorbitant salary. But like these guys used to work like 60, 80 hours. Like, and now with one person, they can kind of do the work of five. Like interested to see what it's going to look like but i'm also a little bit scared for a lot of the industries that not just me but a lot of my like close friends and stuff are in as well right that's absolutely right i just don't know where this is gonna go i think we're we're in uncharted territory moving ahead from here i think nothing changed like there's a joke that you know mm-hmm. if an alien comes to the earth in 2007 and 2009 and he'll feel like okay nothing really changed uh, on earth the buildings are still the same people are still the same except there's like a huge financial crisis that just happened. I would say the same thing. If alien come to earth in 2023 and then 2025, you'll feel, okay, it's the same, it's the same world. But what we just had, is like a complete revolution in terms of AI. And I feel like, you know, the basic language model, which is GPT, is just able to communicate with human in a real authenticated way that you cannot feel like it's a machine, which is a, which is a revolutionary breakthrough. Um, but now I think the capabilities of what it can actually do, aside from the language model, it's been mind-boggling as well. Reading text, solving captions, I think even in a future driving and all that, it's going to revolutionize a lot of things we said. It's just like, I think the scare side is like we as humans, if there's anything uncertain that we would be really scared to know more about it or like to anticipate more about it. So down the road, I, I feel like we talked about last episode too, there's going to be job cuts. There's going to be people who are no longer employed because of AI in the next couple of years. What else are you anticipating to see? So um, it's actually a good thing for people because it means we have more hours to do creative work uh, or do you see the other side, which is like, you know, we, we are in a very, you know, uncharted territory in which there's going to be political issues and also that, you know, because we're a capitalist society in which employers are just going to pick what's best for employers. Um, so what's your take so on this? I'm kind of on the curve where, like, if I take that one step back, I think energy, like, is going to take the road that storage kind of took from, like, the 70s. You know, like, back in the day, a floppy disk with a couple yep. kilobytes was huge. You know, like, all the way to now, we have, like, your USBs with, like, two, three terabytes worth of storage. I think we have to get to that point with energy. And I think that's the road we're taking before AI can really ramp up. Like, the problem with AI is it's too expensive to be able to genuinely scale. Like, the amount of energy consumption it takes between, like, data and everything like that, it's a lot. Like, if you really think about the background of any one prompt that you give it, think of the millions, billions, trillions of data sets it's looking through to give you, like, a 10-word response, right? Like, maybe, like, a sentence response, whatever, like, how long the response will be. But for that, it takes a lot of energy. And so 
I think before we see anything else, we're going to have to fix the energy component. And I think the way to do that is through like nuclear. I think that's the big key there. But once that energy component gets solved and it's something that's scalable, I don't see why you need more than five people on a team that used to be a hundred people, honestly, because one person can do within one day what a team of 10 to 20 will do in the span of a month if AI can really keep progressing at the level it's progressing right yeah. now. And and looking ahead, like, do you think that we'll, we'll live in like a Westworld type of situation? You know, Westworld is basically like a show on HBO and basically like the, you know, robotic human that's created for human entertainment to go over the world because they're a lot smarter. You know, I asked this question on the, the show last year and before ChatGPT, and then by then I was thinking there's no chance it's going to happen. But now I think, I'm not saying it's getting closer to that. It just, it's not something you would say absolutely not, you know? So I'm like, so what do you think of the threat of AI, like, which yeah. has been a topic for a long time? Yeah, I think in terms of humanoids and like stuff like Westworld or like Mr. Robot, whatever, like, or even like when I was talking about Ultron, I think that becomes a little bit harder just because of how expensive it is to get something. Like, you need mechanical engineers, you need like hardware engineers, right? Like, it's not just a software thing. I think software is something that can be made. Like, it's pretty like evident how to do it. Like, when it comes to like actually making like a physical product, like humanoids, stuff like that, I think it's a lot harder. So, I don't know if we're going to see humanoids when it comes to the AI. But I think we will see like uh, something on the other end of it where like uh, AI kind of takes over like every part of it. And what that's going to do is it's going to create what right now we have maybe like, I don't know how much I'm going to make these numbers. I mean, like we have like 10 startup companies starting in a country in a day or like maybe 100. I don't know what the number is. But I think we're going to see like there's just going to be like thousands, millions, billions of literal startup companies because of the amount that AI can do. The barrier to entry is going to be much lower than it's ever been. Like, I think the next form of schooling will be a lot more entrepreneurial, where every one entrepreneur is trying to figure out a small little niche that they're solving. Like it's going to be like it, the way we did group projects in university, right, George? Like, you know, like uh, for you, you had to coding. I did like presentation, like on finance side. But you had a group of like five people and you guys were building one thing out. And that was really it, right? I think it was going to have like small startup companies that stay lean like that. But with the power of AI, they can really start scaling up. And we're going to see that being kind of like the future for a lot of people. Like, I think the whole employee, employer is going to be a lot lower, like, uh, cast. Like, I think now probably like 90-something percent of, like, the population are employees. I think that's gonna that number is going to drop drastically because everyone can kind of start their own firm in some way, somehow. Yeah. Uh, that that's a great point. So I, and I, I want to go to our last topic for the day, which is still related to AI. But essentially, there's been there's been debate that you know if Microsoft and Google unleashes their own AI into the wild, especially for like you know Microsoft 365 and G Suite. So people are going to obviously going to use those free versions, quote unquote free versions of those apps, but developed by you know Microsoft and Google. And there's going to be more apps that are developed by you know individual startups. Uh, or like a ChatGPT wrapper, if you may, they will be dying down because there's nothing actually there. They have built um, that's really concrete. So I was watching the Outlook uh, Microsoft 365 presentation yesterday. It was very specific, actually. It was basically saying that, you know, Microsoft 365 Copilot, it's not just built on ChatGPT. It has three different modules, whereas you have the chat module and you have this 365 module, which is Microsoft developed in-house for a couple of years, actually. And that those modules are communicating with each other before they can actually bring something that's this powerful, like what I just said, like a prompt something and it'll generate a PowerPoint. So that's very competitive, I think, in terms of where things are. And for an average startup to build something like that, it's very expensive and it's not something they can do. So do you think a monopoly situation so long is going to happen here more? After Google and Microsoft are actually in this game uh, long term, do you think it's much more, less likely for startups to succeed? Or do you think OpenAI is paving the way forward for startups? Yeah, I think it's kind of the way a lot of the fang companies were in the last little bit, where they had a monopolistic time period. Like I think back in the mid-2000s to maybe 2015, 2016-ish, Google kind of had like a monopoly on search, right? Like up until like Amazon really took like a big leap forward. I don't think Bing ever had like a big thing there in terms of like market cap hit. But in the same way, like Microsoft had a huge monopoly on the business side, like on enterprise side, right? Like with Excel and everything like that, like for a long time until like Google Sheets started really being like a good thing. 
like Google Docs and everything like they have on that that side of things. And with Apple, I still think Apple has some sort of monopolistic features when it comes to the fact that, you know, like everything from the App Store has to be through the App Store, right? any kind of apps you want, all this other kind of stuff. And so I think that's what it's going to be, that fact that for a while it's going to be an oligopoly between Google and Microsoft because the fact is that they're the two main ones. But one thing that's kind of concerning is the fact that the founders of OpenAI, they sold 50% of their business essentially for $10 billion. And if AI really is a trillion dollar market that I think almost everyone mm-hmm. can kind of see it being, and like it's, it, there's such a high uh, thing before you can create something like ChatGPT, you wouldn't have sold it for $10 yeah. billion, dollars, right? Like for more than like half your company. So I think like that's why really the founders don't think that there is something as proprietary as maybe like what we see from the outside like because they know what's under the hood right for the most part and the other part too you can kind of use these ais to really ramp up and because like like i was mentioning before like where i think there's gonna be so many small businesses there's gonna be somebody that's goal is to take these tines down and because the barrier to entry is so much smaller to take these tines down with how much AI can do. Like if you were a founder, you're really good at like the vision side of things. Like Steve Jobs, for example. Steve Jobs wouldn't have had to need nearly as many engineers, nearly as many accountants or anything else when he was starting Apple if he had all of this stuff behind him, like AI. So like if you're a visionary, you don't need to worry nearly as much like going to the future with AI. So I think they won't have a monopoly for like a long period of time, but they will have a monopolistic period, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I, I feel like, you know, those big companies, I think the, well, the, the value they really have is like a large consumer base and also a large sets of data that they actually, actually apply. Um, that It's going to be very hard for startups to catch up. So I think that's my concern primarily. I think a monopolistic situation is not going to happen in the short term, but I think as long as startups are building something that's actually valuable to the end user. And like we said before, you're not just building AI for the sake of AI. You're building something to solve a problem. Thank you so much, Soham. I think today was a great discussion. I think we analyzed what's happening with SVB, with the Fed, with FDIC, and with uh, community banks. And then we dive into GPT-4 and everything about, you know, ChatGPT, AI, and essentially the future of humanity is on the line too, apparently. So we'll see in the next couple of weeks, you know, what's really going on. I know like there's a lot of things on wrap. I think we did a really good job today. So thanks so much, uh, Soham. And then... Thanks so much for our audiences for listening to, you know, this episode. So we'll see you guys next week. Always a pleasure, George.